Well, over the past number of months, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We have arrived now at a part of this inspired letter that is dealing with holiness in our personal lives and holiness in our church fellowships. Last Sunday, we began to dive into Paul's teaching on sexual immorality from chapter 6. I'd ask you to open up your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and listen carefully as I reread verses 9 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20. I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that, is, that a person commits is outside the body, but sexual the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Word of the Lord. Well, you may recall last week I began the message with an illustration from C.S. Lewis. And once again this morning, I want to open our time together with another word from Lewis, only this time from his well-known book, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity, an entire chapter, is devoted to the subject of sexual morality. At one point, Lewis gives a rather humorous illustration that shows what happens when a God-given appetite is given over to lust and sin. Here's what he writes in his book. I would encourage you to read the rest of the chapter on your own time this week. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate of food onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally strange about the state of the sex instinct among us? One critic said if he found a country in which such striptease acts with food were popular, he would conclude that the people in that country were starving. He meant, of course, to imply 
that such things as the striptease resulted not from sexual corruption, but from sexual starvation. I agree with him that if in some strange land we found a similar act with mutton chops, one of the possible explanations that would occur to me would be famine. The next step would be to test the hypothesis by finding out whether, in fact, much or little food was being consumed in that country. If the evidence showed that a good deal was being eaten, then of course we should have to abandon the hypothesis of starvation and try to think of another one. In the same way, before accepting sexual starvation as the cause of the striptease, we should have to look for evidence that there is, in fact, more sexual abstinence in our age than in those ages when things like the striptease were unknown. But certainly there is no such evidence. Contraceptives have made sexual indulgence far less costly within marriage and far safer outside it than ever before. And public opinion is less hostile to illicit unions and even to perversions than it has been since pagan times. Nor is the hypothesis of starvation the only one we can imagine. Everyone knows that the sexual appetite, like our other appetites, grows by indulgence. Starving men may think much about food, but so do gluttons, the gorged as well as the famished. I'm sorry to have to go into all these details, but I must. And the reason why I must is that you and I for the last 20 years have been fed all day long on good solid lies about sex. We have been told till one is sick of hearing it that sexual desire is in the same state as any of our other natural desires and that if only we abandon the silly old Victorian idea of hushing it up, everything in the garden will be lovely. It is not true. The moment you look at the facts and away from the propaganda, you see that it is not. Insightful words, thought-provoking words from C.S. Lewis that were written during the Second World War the time when the sexual revolution was just in its infancy. Back in C.S. Lewis's day, the popularity of strip clubs was evidence enough that something had gone wrong with the sexual appetite in the West, but today the situation has been amplified to a degree that Lewis and his generation could have scarcely imagined. Today the perverse sexual appetite of fallen humanity is not so much on public display at the raunchy strip joint down the street, rather it is privately hidden on the per personal computer just down the hall, or perhaps on the smartphone in your own pocket. Just listen for a moment to a few statistics about the contemporary plague of internet pornography. Allow the gravity of our contemporary situation to sink into your mind and your heart. Pornography today is the most searched for topic on the internet with 68 million pornographic hits per day. According to one set of statistics, 40 million American adults regularly visit pornographic sites. 20% of men admit to accessing pornography at work. 53% of men identified with the Promise Keepers movement say they have viewed pornography in the last week. 72% of visitors to pornographic websites are women, are men, 28% are women. The average age that children first see internet porn is 11 years old. 90% of 8 to 16 year olds report having viewed pornography online. 80% of 15 to 17 year olds say that they have had multiple exposures to online pornography. 
Heath Lambert, who is a professor of Christian counseling at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, has made the following observation. I'm quoting here from a book entitled The Meaning of Sex. Lambert writes, in Christian circles, adultery and homosexuality often capture more headlines, but I'm persuaded that in sheer numbers, they cannot hold a candle to the devastation of pornography. Last year, I counseled six people struggling with homosexuality, around 18 caught in adultery and fornication. I don't know how many people I helped that were locked in pornography. The number is in the dozens. As bad as that number sounds, those people are not the ones I'm concerned about. The people who concern me are the ones that did not seek me out or anyone else. These are the people who pose the deeper problem. They are the ones who are hiding in the dark while destroying their marriages, ministries, and Christian witness under the radar. Brothers and sisters, it can be uncomfortable for us to speak about these kinds of things at church on Sunday morning, but I am convinced we must speak about these issues because the problem of sexual immorality is not just somewhere out there among the non-Christians or among the liberal churches. The problem of sexual sin is right here in our evangelical camp. And we would be naive to think this morning that sexual immorality was not a live issue right here at Rosedale Baptist Church and in every other evangelical church across our city and across our nation. We're not speaking here of hypothetical sins that are far removed from the church of Christ. Rather, we are confronting this morning a monster that is within the camp, a sin that is devastating the church of Christ, weakening our moral authority and undermining our witness for Christ in the world. The quotation I read earlier from C.S. Lewis, he emphasizes the fact we have been fed a steady diet of lies about sexuality, and that is absolutely true. Our culture, our society, even our churches are rife with lies about sex and gender and gender roles that have not led us into the freedom we were hoping for, but have rather led us into a deadly form of slavery and deception. This morning, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians 6, we are going to allow the Apostle Paul and his inspired words to expose the enemy's lie and to renew our minds with the unchanging truth of God's Word. As I mentioned last time, here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul confronts four deadly lies about sexual sin that were being promoted in ancient Corinth and are still being promoted today, both inside and outside of the church. First of these lies that we dealt with last time is the idea that God does not care that much about sexual sin, that God will not bother to judge the immorality he sees within our churches and within our personal lives. Within the Corinthian church was a group of professing Christians who had taken Paul's teaching about salvation by grace alone through faith and had twisted that truth in such a way that they thought they could take the free gift of God's forgiveness and grace while maintaining a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. There was in the ancient church a libertine faction that was flaunting sin and making an open mockery of the cross. And so here in verses 9 and 10 of our text, Paul addresses the libertines with a stern word of warning, reminding them the kingdom of God is for the righteous and not for the wicked. Those professing Christians who think they can follow Christ while maintaining a lifestyle of unrepentant sin are self-deceived according to verse 9. They will one day discover at the great white throne that they were never saved to begin with. 
It's a biblical principle from Jesus. The quality of a tree can be determined by the fruit it produces. And although it is absolutely true that we are saved by grace alone and not by works, it is also true that genuine Christians produce spiritual fruit. The grace that saves, the grace that justifies, is also a grace that transforms and sanctifies. And if there is no desire for holiness, if there is no active battle against the remnants of sin, there is very good reason to question whether the Holy Spirit is really there at all. Satan would love God's people to believe the lie that God doesn't care about our sex lives, but the Word of God says that every sin that has ever been committed here on earth will be judged by a holy and righteous God. Our sins will either be judged at the cross of Jesus Christ or else our sins will be judged in the lake of fire, but either way, the God of Scripture is a holy God who judges sin even as He is a merciful God who provides a Savior. Second lie about sex we examined last week is found in verse 12. The lie that our freedom in Christ gives us the liberty to do whatever we please. Last week I mentioned the fact the Corinthians had developed a number of catchy slogans and catchphrases they loved to recite to one another. And one of those slogans had to do with their liberty in Christ as we read in verse 12. All things are lawful to me. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul quotes the Corinthian slogan twice, and then he qualifies it twice to prevent it from being used and abused as an easy excuse to sin. Paul tells the Corinthians, first of all, just because something is lawful doesn't mean it is, pro- it is helpful. To put it another way, just because I can do something as a Christian doesn't mean that I should do it. Though Paul was a staunch defender of Christian liberty, he was well aware the exercise of liberty must be governed by our love for God and our love for one another. If my actions in any given situation will reflect poorly upon the Lord Jesus, if my actions will cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble and fall in sin, I ought to voluntarily lay aside my liberty for the sake of love. Christian liberty is always governed by Christian love. That's Paul's first qualification. His second qualification is in the second half of verse 12 where he says we will not be enslaved by anything. As we learned last week, there are some things we think will bring us freedom and happiness that will actually lead us into slavery. God in His mercy and grace has set us free from our bondage to sin. And because He loves us and wants the very best for us, He has set boundaries around certain behaviors and has then revealed those boundaries and those rules for us in His Word. But if in our own human wisdom we decide that we know better than God about these things, and we overstep the boundary as He has put around our sexuality, we will learn the hard way that God has put them there for a good reason. God's intention in setting limits on sexuality is not to restrict us or to make us miserable and repressed. Rather, God has put those boundaries there so that we, His people, would live lives that are both holy and happy. Lives that will bring Christ the glory that is His due. Lives that will promote human flourishing in our homes and in our larger society. First two lies here in 1 Corinthians 6 deal with this whole issue of Christian liberty. But we move on now to a third lie that Paul confronts in verses 13 and 14. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 
The third lie that the Corinthians had come to embrace is the idea that the sexual appetite is something that must be gratified. Here in verse 13, we're introduced to a second slogan that was being used to justify sin in the church. Once again, if you're reading from a modern English translation, you'll notice that the editors have put quotation marks around the slogan so we can see what words are coming from the Corinthians and what words are coming from the Apostle Paul. Verse 13, Paul is quoting one of the Corinthian slogans. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Here in this slogan, the Corinthians are drawing a comparison between our appetite for food and our appetite for sex. Their argument is fairly simple and on the surface it appears to be fairly persuasive. As human beings, we have physical bodies and God has given us a biological impulse to eat whenever we feel hungry, to drink whenever we feel thirsty. And furthermore, God has given us those appetites of hunger and thirst as a means for survival. If you don't eat when you're hungry, if you suppress that impulse for long enough, the eventual outcome will be starvation, death. God created your stomach for a good biological reason, and the reason you've got one is so you can continue to live on this earth and to glorify God in your body. Now, as far as this relationship goes between food and the stomach, there's not a lot of fault that we can find with the Corinthian logic. They had rightly recognized God's design in giving us an appetite that corresponds with a physical part of the body. The problem here is not that the Corinthians had misunderstood God's purpose for the stomach. Rather, the problem is that they had applied this logic to the sexual appetite. If our appetite for food is just a biological impulse we must obey, the Corinthians were reasoning the same thing must be true about our appetite for sex. According to the Corinthian logic, satisfying a sexual craving is no different than satisfying any other biological craving. And if you can go to the fridge to satisfy one of those cravings, you might as well go to the local prostitute to satisfy the other. See the kind of worldly wisdom, the worldly logic that was at work in this church and how deceptive and destructive it was? For these Corinthians, sex was just a biological impulse to be satisfied. In their minds, there's no difference between sitting down at the table for dinner or walking down the street to the local brothel. Part of the Corinthian error was their faulty logic about our sexual appetite. But there's another error here in verse 13 that's even more serious, and it's contained in the second half of the slogan, and God will destroy both one and the other. Disagreement here among New Testament scholars about whether those words were part of the Corinthian slogan or whether they were part of Paul's correction. But after wrestling a great deal with that sentence in my study this week, I've come to conclude they are part of the slogan. that They represent the false theology of Corinth. In the first half of the slogan, we see that the Corinthians had a very low view of sex. In the second half, we discover they had an equally low view of the body. Now to understand the second half of this slogan, which speaks about God destroying both food and the stomach, we first need to understand something about the worldview of the ancient Greeks. Back in the first century, when this letter was first written by Paul, the Greek outlook on the physical body had been deeply influenced by a famous philosopher named Plato. Plato rightfully believed and Plato rightfully taught that human beings are composed of two different parts. On the one hand, a material body. On the other hand, an immaterial soul. 
Unfortunately, Plato went further than that and taught that the soul is fundamentally good, but that the body is fundamentally evil. That is a viewpoint that goes totally contrary to what we read in the Bible. As a result of Plato's teaching, many of the Greeks had embraced a very low view of the human body, so much so that for many of them, salvation was viewed as the liberation of the soul from the body. The Greeks believed that the physical body was a prison for the soul, and this negative view of the body became a hallmark of their worldview. But in God's Word, we get a drastically different picture of the body than we find in the writings of Plato and the philosophers. The Bible presents our bodies as something that God created, something that God declared to be very good. God's Word also presents our bodies as something that is eternal. One of the great doctrines of biblical Christianity is our conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that just as Jesus rose from the dead, one day all of His followers will rise from their graves to live eternally. The great hope for the ancient Greeks was to get rid of the body. The great hope for the Christian believer is to receive a new and a glorified body and then to live in that body forever with the Lord. As you might imagine, Paul's teaching about the body and about the resurrection did not fit very well with Greek philosophy. It's one of the main reasons why the philosophers laughed at Paul and mocked him and rejected the gospel he preached. A little later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to learn that some of the Christians in this church were still very much under the influence of Plato and the philosophers to the point where some of the members in this church were denying the doctrine of the resurrection. That's why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that is devoted to defending the resurrection and resisting some of the lingering questions and doubts these believers had about the value of the body. A negative and unbiblical view of the body had entered into the Corinthian church and we see the evidence of that negative view in verse 13 as they express their conviction that our human bodies are destined for destruction and that our stomachs will not survive the grave. The only problem with that line of reasoning is that the Bible indicates that we will eat and drink in the future kingdom of God. When Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to His disciples, the Bible tells us He ate a fish in front of them. And at the Last Supper, Jesus told His followers one day He would eat and drink with them in the kingdom of God. A reference to the Messianic feast described in Isaiah in the book of Revelation. Now whether or not food will be required for survival in the kingdom, I'm not so sure. But there is biblical evidence to suggest that we will eat and we will drink in the consummated kingdom of God. We will retain that capacity. Corinthian errors about sex and the body are contained in their slogan, but Paul's rebuttal comes in the second half of verse 13 where he writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Corinthians saw no moral difference between eating a meal and going to the prostitute. But Paul wants them to understand this logic about sex is false. When it comes to the stomach, it is true there is a biological relationship that's needed for survival, but that's not true about sex. Thousands of people in our world and throughout history have died of starvation. I can't think of a single person who's ever died from a lack of sex. 
This goes to show us, although God designed our bodies with the capacity to reproduce and to experience pleasure, our sexual appetite is not something that must be gratified at any cost or in any way. God created our desire for sex. God created a venue where that desire can be fulfilled in a productive and God-honoring way. But that venue is not at the brothel. It's not at the strip club. It's not in online pornography. It is not in the arms of someone who is not your husband or wife. The only God-honoring way for a Christian believer to satisfy their sexual appetite is in the confines of marriage. One man, one woman who have made a solemn vow before God to remain faithful to one another for one lifetime. You know, one of the great lies that of ancient Corinth that's persisted down to our present day is the idea that we human beings are just animals who are at the mercy of our own biological instincts and impulses. By and large, our modern Western culture is bought into the Darwinian mindset that says you are just a highly developed animal. The only thing that really sets you apart from your dog or the squirrel in your front yard or the rat in your mouse trap is that you've got a bigger brain. Corinthians had a low view of the body that came from Plato. Canadians have a low view of the body that's come from Darwin. But God's Word doesn't agree with either Plato or Darwin when it comes to the body. God's Word declares we human beings have been created in the very image and likeness of Almighty God. We have a dignity from God that sets us apart from every other animal and creature on this planet. God's Word also declares our special status as image bearers gives us a moral responsibility that is not shared by animals. For animals, sex is just a biological impulse needed to reproduce. For human beings, sex is of far greater significance and it carries with it a great deal of moral responsibility. Although it's a sad reality that many people act like animals who can't control their sexual impulses, the truth is that you and I are not animals. We are image bearers of our Creator. And as image bearers, human beings who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we Christians have the ability and the responsibility to say no to our sinful impulses and to use our sexuality for the glory of God. We read in Titus 2.11, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God did not create our bodies so we can defile and degrade them through sexual sin. He created our bodies for His own glory. And beyond that, the things that we do with our bodies here and now in this life are of tremendous importance to God because those bodies of ours are not destined for destruction in the grave. Rather, they are destined for eternal life in the kingdom of God. Corinthians wrongly thought they could do whatever they pleased with their bodies, but Paul confronts their false theology in verse 14 by reminding them of the resurrection. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So friends, what you and I do with our bodies here on earth is of great significance to God because our bodies are destined to be raised and to be glorified like Christ. You know, just as the Corinthians had been deceived with lies about their sexual appetite, so we too have fallen for the devil's trap in our modern age. 
One of the great lies that permeates our world today is the belief that sexual gratification is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being and that we cannot live healthy and satisfied lives if we are not in some kind of sexual relationship. There was once a time when our society held a place of understanding and respect for men and women who chose to remain single and celibate, but today a life of celibacy seems totally implausible and totally unrealistic. And so instead of embracing and encouraging those who are single and celibate, we instead ridicule them with movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And we have come to believe, I think, there must be something wrong with a person who chooses not to have sex or to fulfill their appetites in a way that dishonors God. How tragic that we no longer make room in our society for celibacy. How sad that sometimes even within our own churches we can so elevate marriage and sex and family life that we give the impression to our singles that they are second-class citizens. That our celibate single members are missing out on something that is essential to their satisfaction and humanity. Sex has become a tremendous idol in our culture. Perhaps it is the idol of our culture. What about our teenagers? Western society has all but given up on encouraging them to abstain from sexual activity until they are married. Instead, we focus our efforts, our resources, our tax dollars on teaching them how to use birth control. Then we encourage them to experiment openly with their sexuality, to question their gender identity, not to let anyone get in the way of their sexual liberty or to suggest that there is a right and a wrong way to use the body. It would seem the only remaining rule and guideline we have in culture today around sex is that we still recognize and observe con consent and thank God for that. As long as both parties are in agreement with sexual arrangement, all is well and good. But beyond that, we shouldn't let anyone get in the way. Don't let anyone tell you what you can do with your body. We bought into a lie today. The lie that our sexual appetite must be gratified at any cost, that sex is for the body and that the body is for sex. We've been duped by the deception that we are just highly developed animals at the mercy of our biological impulses. And in the midst of all of this confusion and deception, it is so important that the church remember that Jesus Christ was the most joyful, satisfied man who ever walked planet earth and that he was a man who never once gave into sexual temptation, who never once satisfied his sexual desires in a way that brought dishonor upon the heavenly father. Jesus Christ was celibate. Jesus Christ was single. Jesus Christ was perfectly satisfied. And in a society that has turned sex into an idol, let us not forget the words of another single and celibate man named Paul, who once said that he had learned to be content in any circumstance. Brothers and sisters, our culture believes that we must have sex to be satisfied. But God's word says that true and lasting satisfaction in this life comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. The body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. We come now, fourthly, and finally, to the last lie about sexual sin that is exposed in the final verses of this chapter. So let's have another look at verses 15 to 20. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Fourth lie about sexual sin is probably the most pervasive deception that we hear today from those who want to justify sexual activities that the Bible condemns. It's the idea that my sex life isn't hurting anyone. I think it's pretty obvious we're now living in an age where the dominant ethic that governs most of our society is hedonism and utilitarianism. The idea that we should act in a way that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain both in our own lives and in the lives of others around us. It's a popular idea that we should just live and let live, that we should avoid judging the actions and the beliefs of others around us if they are minding their own business and not actively seeking to do harm. This hedonistic, pleasure-seeking worldview is nicely captured by Sheryl Crow in a song I still hear on the radio sometimes. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And I think that's the way most of us here in the West want to live our lives. Not evaluating our sexual choices and preferences according to the teaching of the Word or according to the design of nature or according to the wisdom of past generations, but rather doing whatever we think will give us the greatest pleasure in the moment. There are many, many different problems with a utilitarian ethic, but the greatest problem of all is that it does not take into account our limited ability to foresee the consequences of actions or to predict how our actions will affect society as a whole over the long haul. Those of us who are parents with children know that our children sometimes do very dangerous and very foolish things because they do not have the foresight and the wisdom to determine what the consequences will be. That's why God has given parents to children. That's why God has given His Word to humanity. Because God our Father sees what we cannot always see. God our Father knows what we cannot always know. It may not be immediately obvious to you why premarital sex is wrong and harmful, but perhaps the God who invented sex and designed sex knows something that you don't know. You might not immediately understand why homosexuality is sinful, but maybe the God who invented sex and the God who invented the genders knows something that you don't know. Well, here in these concluding verses of 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul pulls the veil back a little bit and he gives us a few reasons why God takes sexual sins so seriously, including those sins and those behaviors that our hedonistic culture now embraces and even celebrates with open arms. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, he wants us to understand, sexual sin is not just a bit of harmless fun. Whenever we sin sexually with our bodies, there is always a victim. And Paul is now going to help us see that reality in the concluding verses. The first victim, the most important victim of sexual sin in our lives is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 
In verse 15, Paul makes a theological statement reminding us that we Christians have been united to Christ by grace alone through faith. When you became a Christian and asked Jesus to wash away your sin and become your Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit united you with Christ so that His perfect life becomes your life, so that His crucifixion becomes your death, so that His resurrection becomes the basis for your resurrection. To be a Christian by definition is to be united with Jesus Christ. And the image the Bible uses to communicate that new association is none other than the image of marriage. According to Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 5, the intimate relationship between a husband and wife and the covenant bond of marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. As Christians, we have entered into a solemn covenant relationship with Christ and as a result our spirit, of that spiritual union, our souls and our physical bodies belong to Him. That's the theological principle in verse 15. The fact that we have been united with Christ. Our bodies and our souls are completely His. Now in verse 16, Paul goes on to establish a second principle that clarifies God's original intention for sex and why it is such a problem when we misuse this precious and holy gift. You notice in verse 16, Paul quotes a a short sentence from chapter 2 of the book of Genesis where God says that the two will become one flesh. In its original context, God is describing in that verse what happens when a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. Those two individuals are permanently united together in the covenant of marriage and that covenant union is then consummated through sexual union. If the Corinthians believed that sex was just a biological itch that needed to be scratched, Paul is now showing them in these verses, sex is a sacred gift from God. It is a gift that unites two human beings together in the bond of marriage. It is a gift that actually pictures and symbolizes the unity between Jesus Christ and His church. Whenever a Christian husband and wife unite together in sexual union, God is glorified. The marriage bond is strengthened. But if a Christian decides to unite sexually with someone outside of the marriage covenant, Christ is profaned. And the symbolism of our spiritual union with Christ is distorted. In ancient Corinth, some of the members of the church were visiting prostitutes. Paul wants them to know whenever they go to the brothel, Christ is right there with them. Whenever they have sex with the prostitute, Paul wants them to know they are not only defiling their own body, they're defiling Christ's body too. And so we must understand, church, that the first and the most important victim of sexual sin is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, for we're told later on that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, are the first victims of sexual sin, but in verse 18, Paul informs us when we sin sexually, we are also harming ourselves. Have another look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's hard to know precisely what Paul means when he makes that distinction between sins committed outside of the body and sins committed against the body, but what Paul seems to be saying here is that sexual sin harms us in a way that other sins do not. 
Some activities like excessive drinking or smoking or overeating might do physical damage to your body, but sexual sin affects your body and your soul and the entirety of your person in a way that those other sins do not. And although many people treat sex as though it is merely a biological mechanism for pleasure, the truth is it is impossible to go to bed with someone and to leave your soul parked outside the room. Whenever we give ourselves to someone sexually, we are not only giving them our body, we are also giving them a little piece of our soul. In His wisdom, God has designed sex to be a kind of glue that unites two people together in the bond of marriage. But when you have sex with someone who is not your spouse, it is a little bit like sticking your tongue to an icy pole in the wintertime and then ripping it off. Every time you do it, you are leaving a little bit of yourself behind. You are creating an emotional wound in your heart that might never fully heal in this life. This is one reason why any form of premarital or extramarital sex goes completely against God's design and why God has forbidden it in His Word. And when it comes to internet pornography, which is such a problem, such a plague in the church today, there is all kinds of evidence from both Christian and non-Christian sources that show how addictive and destructive it is to our spiritual, emotional, and even physical health. No research and experience have shown internet pornography leads to addictions that are extremely difficult to break. Repeated exposure to internet pornography actually rewires and changes your brain. We know that pornography promotes all kinds of twisted lies about sexuality. It sets expectations for marriage in the bedroom that will never be met by a real and self-respecting person in this world. There are also studies that show that porn addiction is leading to impotence and erectile dysfunction in young men that are so engrossed in their online sexual fantasies they can no longer get interested in the real thing. But beyond these things, We know that pornography is a sin that victimizes women by objectifying them as sexual objects to be used for our own pleasure rather than viewing them as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. There is no better way to destroy your marriage, to destroy your sexuality, to destroy your relationship with Christ than by indulging in internet pornography. For the Christian, there is absolutely no redeeming quality in pornography. It creates a demand for the very things that we Christians are called to hate. And in too many cases, it involves men and women who have been sexually abused and molested, or even worse, children, young women who have been sexually trafficked and enslaved by pimps. And so understand today, friends, and understand seriously, If you are viewing pornography in the privacy of your home and you think that your activities are not hurting anyone, you are profoundly mistaken. And if you're here this morning and you are struggling with internet pornography or any other sexual sin or addiction, I would urge you to seek counseling and to confess your sin to a trusted Christian friend of the same gender who will keep you accountable and will help you walk in the path of holiness. As the great and the godly John Owen used to say, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Sexual sins are not unforgivable sins, but if we play with fire, we're going to get burned. 
Our culture has convinced us, it's tried long and hard to convince us, sexual immorality is just a little bit of innocent fun that doesn't harm anyone, but God's Word says something different. According to the Bible, sexual sin implicates Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, it violates your own body and soul, and it leads you back into a miserable state of bondage and slavery. And in the light of all of this inspired teaching and warning, Paul's practical instruction for us as Christian men and women is twofold. In verse 18, he commands us to flee from sexual immorality. And in verse 20, he commands us to glorify God with our bodies. When we are tempted to sin sexually, sometimes the best thing we can do is to follow the example of Joseph in the Old Testament and to run for our lives. Sexual sin is not something we can casually entertain and play around with because if we give it an inch, it will take a mile. We must come to recognize the areas of our lives that are most vulnerable to sexual temptation and then we must actively put guards in place so we are not putting ourselves in the pathway of temptation. Now for some of us, that might mean that we're not going to the beach this summer because we can't do so with a clean mind and a pure heart. For others of us, it might mean we're not surfing the internet without proper oversight and accountability from a Christian friend. For some of us, it means that we might be taking the painful step of cutting off a relationship that is not above reproach, that is not pleasing to our God. For parents with children and teens, it means we need to keep a close eye on what they're doing, restricting the websites they visit online talking with them regularly about what they are learning about sex from their friends at school, from their teachers in the public school system who do not share our moral convictions and values. No matter who you are, no matter what your situation might be, God's call on our lives is to flee immorality and to take practical steps that will protect ourselves and protect our families. Fleeing sexual sin is the first step to victory. But equally important is our need to replace every false idol, every functional Savior with the true Savior, Jesus Christ, and to fill our minds and our hearts with a true sense of His glory and His beauty and His majesty. The very best way to combat the ugliness of sexual sin is by keeping your eyes fixed upon the beauty of Jesus Christ and continually reminding yourselves you are not your own. You have been bought with the price. The price He paid to buy you was His own blood that was poured out on the cross for you. I want to leave you this morning with words from an old hymn I remember singing at church in my childhood. These words have been a great source of encouragement and help to me in my own struggles against sin and temptation. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, He will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you, and He will carry you through. Shun evil companions, bad language, disdain. God's name hold in reverence, nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus. He'll carry you through. To him that o'ercometh, God giveth a crown. 
Through faith we will conquer, though often cast down. He who is our Savior, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus, and He'll carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you. Comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you, and He will carry you through. Amen.